now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi there. My name is David French. I'm a senior editor at The Dispatch and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. And I'm here to talk to you about a piece I wrote for Persuasion called The Twitter Files Show It's Time to Reimagine Free Speech Online. A few years ago, I was invited to an off-the-record meeting with senior executives at a major social media company. The topic was free speech. I'd just written a piece for the New York Times called A Better Way to Ban Alex Jones. My position was simple. If social media companies want to create a true marketplace of ideas, they should look to the First Amendment to guide their policies. This position wasn't adopted on a whim, but because I'd spent decades watching powerful private institutions struggle and fail to create free speech regulations that purported to permit open debate at the same time that they suppressed allegedly hateful or harmful speech. As I told the tech executives, you're trying to recreate the college speech code, except online, and it's not going to work. In my piece, I trace the evolution of the college speech code and that desire to create an ideal free speech environment, why it failed and why similar efforts in Silicon Valley have failed as well. And so I propose this alternative. An alternative is a speech regime inspired by the First Amendment. Social media companies can adopt whatever speech policies they want. They're private companies. But I urge them to adopt a policy guided by the principle of viewpoint neutrality as articulated in the First Amendment and by First Amendment jurisprudence, more than a century of First Amendment jurisprudence. And critically within the piece, I talk about how First Amendment guided social media policies do not mean anything goes, that you can protect users from harassment. You can protect users from defamation, from slander, from libel, from invasions of privacy. But I'd ask you to check out the piece and see what you think about the history of efforts to regulate speech the history of efforts to create free speech utopias on college campuses, and what those lessons hold for social media companies. David French's piece called The Twitter Files Show It's Time to Reimagine Free Speech Online was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest for an uh, overdue conversation today is Roya Hakakian. Roya is an Iranian-American poet and journalist. She teaches nonfiction writing at Yale University and is the author, among other books, of Journey from the Land of No and, most recently, a Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. We talked about the ongoing protests against the theocratic regime in Iran. With Roya's help, I try to make sense of how Iran has changed over the last five decades. I try to understand the amazing contrast between a regime which tries to impose deep religiosity and devoutness and serious restrictions on the population and a society which has in many ways, secularized and modernized over the course of those same five decades. We discussed the reasons why these protests have such broad support and the prospects of whether they might succeed. And finally, we talked about what all of us can do to help those people now bravely fighting for their freedom in Iran. Raya Hakakian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you again. So, you know, these protests in Iran 
have a long tradition, right? We had a protest movement at the end of the 2000s. We've had protests against the theocratic regime repeatedly since it took power in 1979. What is special, if anything, about this moment? Why do you think, if you do, that there is more reason to hope for a fundamental challenge to the regime now than there has been in the past? I think there is, and I think this is fundamentally different. And here's my thinking. There have been many, many demonstrations in Iran since 1979. There have been a few important peaks in the movements that have come before. The most significant one came in 2009 in the semblance of what we came to know as the Green Movement. It was a reaction to the election of President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. And people had at the time voted for his rival, who was Mir Hossein Musavi. And Mir Hossein Musavi was basically a product of the Islamic Republic thinking and infrastructure himself. And he had been, in fact, a prime minister in Iran before. So he was running this time in 2009 as a reform candidate. And a lot of the youth in Iran had invested in him and were excited about the possibility of him becoming a president. And then suddenly, you know, the elections uh, didn't go the way that the public had thought. And for many reasons, everyone believes that it was rigged. And so in the aftermath, people took to the streets in great numbers. And the fundamental slogan at the time was, where is my vote? Now, to me, the notion of where is my vote implies that the nation, the protesters, are in conversation with the system, with the regime that they believe that if they make a reasonable demand, civilly, politely, they will get a response because to them, the regime still has a sense of legitimacy, that if they do all the right things, which at the time meant take to the streets, you know, express your dissatisfaction with the situation, ask for a recount or whatever, then you will get from that regime what you deserve. And that didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. A great deal of violence was carried out. In my view, a huge generation marked another departure, another wave of immigration of Iranian activists and civil society intellectuals who took to the streets and then were jettisoned out of the country once again. And they changed the landscape of the diaspora. But that was a huge moment. And hundreds of people were killed, many more executed tortured in prisons. You know, these are very traumatic moments. Just to jump in there, so I guess what you're implying is that at the time, this was an important protest movement, an inspiring one, but it actually was accommodationist in a certain kind of way. Its goal was to have the winning candidate in the presidential elections reinstated. And this was not somebody who was a radical opponent of the regime. It was somebody who came from Within the regime, it was somebody who had been allowed to run by the supreme religious leaders, as some people would not be. And the demand effectively was, hey, count our vote, right? Like recognize, live up to the things you promised from within the political system. And so it was obviously a political challenge to the regime in certain kinds of ways. But I take it you're saying it was quite a limited challenge that didn't mean to subvert the basic foundation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And so 
I'm guessing now that what you're trying to say is that that's different today, that the nature of a purchase today is a lot less accommodationist and constitutes a more fundamental challenge to the founding principles of the theocratic regime than the Green Movement did in 2009. Precisely. So I think 2009 was the moment when the nation said, okay, we started a reform movement with the rise of Khatami in 1997 to power. And by 2009, it had been over a decade that we had given the reform movement a shot. And when that didn't work, when somebody within the regime as Musavi couldn't get to presidential office, then I think that was the end of the reform movement for the people inside Iran, because they did everything they possibly could through electoral participation, through campaigning, through all the means that was available to them to get this guy to become president, and they couldn't. And I think that's when the idea that reform could have a possibility ended for the people in Iran. So what are the qualities of this time around, of this round of movements? It's that the conversation with the regime, unlike what it was like in 2009, has ended. There's nobody on the streets who is saying, eradicate the morality police. There are no demands that these protesters are making from the system. And the only thing they're saying is the dictator must fall, death to the dictator, and we're done with you. And I think that's what, in my view, whether it succeeds or not, makes it a revolutionary moment. They're not going home. They're making demands that the regime cannot meet, nor can the regime send these protesters home and quell the movement. So in that way, I think it hugely qualifies as a revolutionary moment in that the end to the conversation that was going on over 10 years ago with the system, and also in other manifestations, which is in calling death to the supreme leader now and death to the founder, which is Ayatollah Khomeini, who established this new system in 1979. And I think these are ideas that tell us that the people are fundamentally done with a non-secular system. That's fascinating. When I see protest movements in dictatorships, I'm always a little bit torn, right? Because I wish them the best of luck. I identify with them from a distance insofar as that's appropriate. I have biggest admiration for people who are risking their lives in the street for their ideals. But of course, it's also tempting to think it's not going to work out in the end. And a lot of people will be arrested. A lot of people will be killed without having achieved the valiant goal they're fighting for. And I must admit that at the beginning of this protest, that's been a little bit my impression. I've been struck, though, by how long these protests have now been going on and how broad the support for them has been among you know professions like teachers, for example. And so... You know, what is it that has allowed these protests to persist for such a long time? Why is it that the Iranian regime, even though it has obviously used considerable force to crush these protests, has not gone all out? It has not used all of the force at its disposal in order to crush these protests completely, shifting from the very interesting qualitative case you've made for what's different about the demands today and how that makes it qualify as a revolutionary moment. What about the simple sort of 
a hard fact of how strong support for the protest is and why so far it has been able to restrain the regime from quashing it in a most violent way. What explains that longevity and, and that deeper base of support? I just want to offer a qualification. I don't think the regime hasn't prevented itself from using violence. I think what's happening is that the protesters haven't provided the opportunity in big cities, especially in Tehran, for the regime to attack them in the way that they did in 2009. So part of the reason why we don't see, you know, a million man march is because if everybody takes to the streets, then, you know, they'll bite the bullet and they'll bring out the tanks and, you know, the big guns and, and attack them wholesale as they've done before. And I think part of the reason we keep seeing these small protests, but throughout the city and throughout the country has guaranteed their endurance. That's very interesting. So there's a kind of tactical innovation here in a way to say we're going to spread all over, we're only ever going to assemble in relatively small numbers, and that makes it harder for the regime to attack us. That's interesting and in some ways counterintuitive. Absolutely. And especially given the past experiences. So I think it's very uplifting to know that they are taking all the proper lessons. But in places where they have been able to deploy every amount of violence against large crowds, they have. They've done that in Baluchistan. They killed over 90 worshippers at a Friday prayer in Zahedan about two months ago. They've done so in Kurdistan. So when there has been the opportunity for them to actually go into a city knowing that the city itself is against them. And by the way, those are border cities that are far away from the center and there are less cameras, less coverage, then they have been entirely brutal and they have used all the violence. And by the way, we're setting aside all the abuse and torture and all the other things that they're doing to 16 plus thousand people that they've arrested in prisons at the moment. So we are leaving all those out. Let me push you perhaps for a moment on that point before we get to the broader question, because what you're saying does seem to me to suggest that the regime is scared for what the impact of large-scale open violence in the cities in the center of Rwanda would be. So it's one thing to say we're in a city where ethnic minorities are concentrated, and that's something that perhaps you know, if there's violence there, we can sell it as, you know, quashing a kind of ethnic rebellion and we're not going to see as much of the mainstream of Iranian society be shocked by it and think no regime potentially. But it seems as though there is a kind of PR consideration, which is, well, hang on a second. If we start openly killing people in the center of Tehran, that may actually push public opinion against us even more strongly. So to be clear, I'm not crediting the regime of any kind of moral scruples here. But I guess as a political scientist, one of the things that I'm interested in understanding in the situation is how strong the cards of a regime are or how strong the regime seems to think its cards are. And if the regime is saying, look, in these peripheral cities, we can actually crush protests in this really openly violent way. But in much of Iran, we can't risk doing that. That makes me think that they're worried about what would happen if they tried, about whether some troops might then defect, about whether that would become the occasion for even broader mass mobilization 
in response to it. And those are the kinds of moments when regimes fall. So as somebody who really knows very, very little about Iran, one of the reasons why I'm pushing on this point is that I'm sort of trying to understand how many cards does the regime hold and how confident is it? And what you're saying actually makes me think that the cards may be weak, or at least the regime feels constrained in these kinds of ways. And that might open up, might open up the possibility for the kind of split between hardliners and softliners, between people who are loyal to regime and people who say, hang on a second, perhaps we're not willing to use that much violence in order to protect the current social order, which does actually allow revolts and rebellions to succeed. I think that's one possibility. Certainly, they don't want any more bad publicity than they've already got. But I think the other is that they may very well have trouble recruiting from their own to carry out large-scale violence in major cities. There are reports of, you know, just sheer exhaustion on the part of the riot police and other military personnel that they have. There's also rifts within the military apparatus. There was a report that came out as a result of a major hacking operation that revealed they had arrested something close to 150 military personnel who were sympathetic to the protesters. So it's not simply a consideration on their part. I think it's also a consideration for how much they can do without creating a riot from within their own ranks. So I think that's another issue that's going on. But going back to the earlier point about why it's enduring, some of it is captured entirely in the fundamental slogan that defines this movement, which is woman, life, liberty. And I think in some ways, this is the parallel idea as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I think what there is, is a recognition that life itself really has no ability to thrive under the circumstances in Iran today, that there is no sense of future that the youth have about what is on the horizon for them. And I think the sense of futurelessness is a huge motivation. And the second thing is, and you hear it in the slogans coming out, is that we're not leaving this country. We are here to overthrow you, but we are not going to vacate the premises, so to speak. And I think there's a deep recognition that if every generation keeps going outside of Iran, you know, leaving, going into exile, then who's going to remain here to change this system? And I think there's a real devotion to the idea of sticking it out in order to bring about major change. And I think everybody who has been underestimating what's happening is doing precisely the mistake that they made at the start of the war against Ukraine in February of 2022. There were very few people who were forecasting the Ukrainians to resist, never mind succeed. And the overwhelming thought was that the Ukrainians were going to be overpowered by the Russians and Russia was going to, you know, march in and take over the whole country very quickly. And I think Iran is proving to be behaving similarly, that they are committed, that they recognize that this is a difficult moment for the nation. But as long as they don't put themselves through this crucible, that there will be no future to keep them in the country, no future to look forward to. And therefore, I think 
it's continuing. One of the strange ironies about the history of Iran over the last half century is that, you know, very quickly after 1979, you had the consolidation in power of this deeply theocratic regime, which is trying to use all of the levers of the state to indoctrinate people to be, you know, deeply devout from the way that it runs the, you know, elementary and secondary school system to the university system to television and public media to, of course, you know, laws like the mandatory hijab. And yet, in what I think is a kind of amazing testament to the human striving for liberty, the actual changes in society seem to have, at least in some respects, gone counter to those intentions. So at this point, I believe a majority of students in higher education are young women rather than men. According to some recent polls I have seen, over 70% of people in Iran disagree with the compulsory hijab law. There's been a real secularization in Iranian society. So only about 30% of uh, Iranians now say that they pray five times a day, a figure that is lower than it was in the past, as I understand it. And a good half of the Iranian population openly say that they want to live in a secular state. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the nature and the shape of Iran's society today and help those of us who don't know much about the country understand that amazing contrast between a regime that for 50 years has used all of these resources to entrench religion and a society which has actually secularized to what seems, at least from those figures, a remarkable extent. Right. So I just want to add one qualification to one of the statistics that you offered. It's true that the overwhelming majority of students in higher education are women. But I just want to say that this is not happening because of the regime. It's happening despite the regime. Because oftentimes these statistics are being used to say, oh, look, you know, here's a regime that sent women to universities. No, women just decided that since they can't actually enter the job market after they graduate, they should do everything else in order to change their own future, in order to become the citizens that they're not allowed to become. And I think their participation in the education has been an act of resistance more than anything else. Of course, and that's very much how I meant it, right? The contrast between what the kind of model of society is that the regime wants to impose and the way in which the society has actually evolved, despite all of its attempts to stop that from happening. Right. But you'd be surprised how many people often use that very statistics to say, you misunderstand the regime, they're doing these things. So to move on, I think one of the things that we are incapable of recognizing in the West, because the regime looks the way it does, it has all the garb, all the disguises of a religiously devout leadership. But what I oftentimes refer to them as is, you know, Tony Sopranos in turbans and robes. The Sopranos have taken over Iran. It's really an economic mafia more than anything else. And the way the disguise works is that it makes everybody else, especially the West, think that these are Muslims, you know, out of respect for their religion and their tradition. We need to stay out because we don't understand who they are, what they do, and they are beyond our comprehension. So they've managed to kind of keep up a good game because they look the way they do. They dress as they do. And they do embrace this 
at least overtly, this mantle of religiosity. But at every opportunity, when you can kind of peel back the disguise, as fortunately, social media has given people the opportunity to do, you see them going to Europe, for instance, and their wives and daughters are without the hijab, right? Or there was another posting that I don't remember if it was a hacker or what, but had put on the internet of some high-ranking official who was traveling in Thailand or someplace with a lover who was dressed just like anybody else on the street and nothing special. So I think they have failed to actually live up to the standards that they have set for religiosity, for piety, and social media has revealed this duplicity on their part. And, you know, we should also not discount the fact that when Ayatollah Khomeini gave his first speech arriving in Tehran, he was promising equality. He was promising that since they had gotten rid of a bad monarch who had created all these poor, impoverished classes in the country, he was going to do the reverse, that there was going to be economic equality and people were hearing all sorts of things, including that, you know, the prisons were going to become museums and that sort of thing. What has happened is that now we have a cast of religious oligarchs in Iran who are there to reap the benefits of being in high official positions while their children and their families live in Canada, North America, Europe, according to the best lifestyles that you could possibly fathom in these countries. So all of this has deeply undermined the societal belief that this is the regime that they voted for in 1979 when, you know, a national referendum was held. People voted for Islamic Republic, yes, as the new form of government that they had chosen. They have basically managed to disillusion people and renege on all the promises that they had initially made, especially when it comes to freedom of speech and, you know, dismantling prisons and things are a hundred times worse than they had ever been prior to the revolution. And I think that fundamentally, at the end of the day, has created a sense of huge distrust, not just in the regime, but a disaffection from Islam in general, which explains the proclivities for secularity in the current society of Iran. But I think there is a class that remains conservative, that remains observant, that still supports the current movement. And I think that's because they recognize if there's any hope for Islam to survive, and if there's going to be any hope for them to remain practicing Muslims in Iran, they have to make sure that they get past this regime that completely ruins their reputation and is just a bad mark on the faith that they have, you know, they practice and they believe in. Help me understand in a little bit more detail the contrast between Iranian society in 1979 and 2022. Because as I take it from what you're saying, there are some similarities, right? Which is that actually perhaps a significant number of Iranians or a majority of Iranians in 1979 did want to have more freedom and equality 
than they had had under the monarchy and certainly a lot more freedom and equality than they were eventually given by the theocratic regime. So in a sense, that aspiration to some amount of liberty and self-determination may be a constant. At the same time, it seems like there are at least two important differences. The first is that I take it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but statistics do seem to suggest that there has been a real uh, process of secularization from the size of the average family in 1979 to the educational level of women in society at the time on average, with obvious exceptions, to the number of times that people prayed. All of that seems to have changed quite a lot over the course of the last 50 years. And as we were talking about earlier, ironically, it seems to have changed towards a more secular, less devout society, towards a society in which women in certain ways play a bigger role because they have those degrees, they have that education and so on that had been unavailable to them earlier. And then secondly, I suppose that the nature of the opposition to that institutionalized religion seems to have hardened. I mean, this is something I sometimes think about in Italy, right? I mean, Italy is a country that is deeply shaped by Catholicism, but precisely for that reason, it's also a country where I know some of the most outspoken and sometimes I might even think immeasurate anti-clericalists, right? Because if you're growing up in a country in which the church has holds so much power, your sort of resistance to that power and your disdain for it is going to be even more intense if you reject it. And it seems like that's sort of a change. Obviously, there's big differences between the role of Catholicism in Italy at any point and the role that Islam plays in Iran today. But it seems like something like that kind of change has happened in Iran 50 years ago. Well, 50 years ago, even people who perhaps were not that devout, even people who perhaps were somewhat skeptical of Khomeini, were perhaps religious at some level, had goodwill towards those ideas. And now, after 50 years of theocratic rule, have become sort of more outspokenly anti-clerical or have become more resolute in the rejection of any kind of religious influence in society. That's what I'm piecing together from this conversation. But is that a fair way of characterizing the contrast between what Iranian society was like 50 years ago and what it is now? Or how would you characterize that contrast? How, how can we understand the change that has occurred in Iranian society over the course of the last half century? So there are two key ideas that we should engage with. One is that now that we look back in retrospect, the most important difference between the Iranian society or the society that seems to be anti-regime now and the one that was anti-regime and protesting on the streets in 1978-1979 is that the previous one was politically, ideologically, I should say, motivated, and this one isn't, which in some ways, I think, speaks to the far deeper democratic nature of the current one, as opposed to the previous one. So the two driving forces of the 1978 and 1979 movement were the religious conservatives, led by primarily Khomeini on the right, and then a medley of leftist, communist, socialist, and religious, you know, Islamic communists on the other side. And these two forces were in a constant state of competition for power, for legitimacy, for recognition. And at some point, I think the decision became how it happened. I think it was an organic and natural process that, you know, let Khomeini overthrow the Shah and then we can sort out, you know, who should be in power 
later. But the reality is that you either had a very communist left on the left to choose from ideologically or a right. And there was really nothing much in between. In fact, if there was something in between, it was still the women that were, even in 1979, demanding for democratic and civil liberties. And I think that's what has kept women in the position of you know, leadership of the current movement, because they have this history of having been the people who have been asking for democratic rights, demanding their democratic rights, even as early as March 8th of 1979. So, you know, two weeks, three weeks after the Iranian revolution became triumphant and Khomeini returned to Iran in February of 1979, women took to the streets in major cities, especially in Tehran, saying that they were not going to accept the hijab, the mandatory dress code. And this is two, three weeks after Khomeini has returned. He is now either the most beloved figure or the most feared figure in the country. And so even at that moment, it is the women who dare take to the streets and who dare say, we didn't participate in a revolution in order to go back. So it is women who are resisting the oncoming of what they sense to be a reactionary future for them. What is very different now is that, of course, it's the same Iran, pretty much, you know, the same people. But the difference is that there is no ideology driving. There is no left and right. And what has brought people together is the desires for the very fundamental secular democratic ideals that every democratic revolution in the world has known of. And I think in some ways, George Washington and, you know, the founding fathers of the United States have best captured in their writings from the late 1770s. And those sentiments are very well captured in the song Baroye, which became very famous, you know, with the singer who sang this song saying, we are out on the streets, we want this movement for our women, our sisters, our mothers to be free, to dress as they wish. We are conducting this movement for having the right to walk our dogs on the street because religious institutions have issued an edict that, you know, we can't have dogs because dogs are considered dirty. So when you take that apart, you realize that there is no ideology this time. It's just the fundamental desire to live what people call a normal life. And that's why I put so much more faith in this than I ever have in any previous movement, and particularly in 1979, that in some ways, all those that were being driven by parties and organizations were bound to be failed if their direction was democracy. And this one, I think, understands that these are the fundamental pillars of a democratic life. The other thing that I think is worth considering, thinking about why the Iranian society wishes and is so determined to become secular, is that the real revolution in Iran began in 1906 with the constitutional revolution. And the tension then was also the tension between the secularists inside Iran and the religious clergy there. And it has been an ongoing strife for over a 100 years. 
And I think what happened was that the clergy who had been on the scene, who had been resisting and refusing to allow Iran to have a real constitutional order, finally won in 1979, came to power. The nation had that experience. And now that ongoing rivalry is over because they lost. They had the power. They couldn't deliver what they had promised. And now that 100 plus year movement has come to fruition. And this time the constitutionalists of so many decades ago finally are seeing the day. Fascinating. So going back to 1979, your argument is that, you know, there was this mass resistance movement to the monarchy, but it was fundamentally split. But what they could agree on, as is often the case for opposition movements, is we want to get rid of the Shah, we want to get rid of the powers that be at the moment. But there was just all along this fundamental split about what should come after between an effectively communist left and an Islamist right. Today, that doesn't seem to be the case. So that you have a regime and then you have an opposition, which despite, I'm sure, all kinds of ideological shades and all kinds of shades and how exactly they feel about religion or about Islam, just says, hey, we want to get rid of this oppressive theocratic regime and we want many more ordinary liberties for people to lead the lives as they wish, to choose themselves whether they want to wear the hijab or not, to be able to walk their dogs in the street for women, obviously, to have equal rights in the society, and so on and so forth. What today is the sort of sociology of who supports the regime and who opposes it? So obviously, there are the people who are in power and who want to preserve the power. I understand that there's a big economic system of domination, and so people who are profiting from their political connections or from their political power for economic gain presumably want to preserve the system, or at least a lot of them. There's a large number of people employed by the revolutionary guards and by other parts of the security state who presumably have a vested interest in preserving the regime. What about other people? I mean, there must be some very conservative milieus, some very religious milieus, perhaps more rural areas. I don't know. You know, who else are the supporters of a regime who don't want to see it go? What determines whether somebody in Iran today is sympathetic to the opposition, sympathetic to the protests, or whether they are sympathetic to the regime, even at this late stage? So, you know, it's very hard to know this accurately because there is no polling in Iran. There is no access to public opinion in Iran. But I think what seems very clear is that even really conservative people in Iran who continue to be practicing Muslims and desire to remain so, believe that they don't want to be represented by this regime, that somehow this regime has corrupted the idea of piety and spirituality that religion represents for them, Islam represents for them. And I think they recognize that there is a certain degree of corruption that, again, you know, somehow Mars and stains the notion that, you know, here, these are the representatives of God on earth. So I think certainly their own supporters continue to support them. And certainly I can imagine that there are other castes within the Iranian society, other layers, you know, maybe in the rural areas, although there has been so much water shortage and other economic issues that, especially in the past five or 10 years, some of the peoples who have taken to the streets 
have been from the rural areas, have been from the places we had never seen uprisings in. And there has been such great mismanagement that the lack of water, the lack of other fundamental infrastructure has driven them to the streets. But as far as the popularity of this movement and the anti-regime sentiment in Iran is concerned, you just need to look at where these protests have taken place in order to recognize this isn't what we have seen in Iran before. For instance, in Khomeini, which is the birthplace of Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, protesters set Khomeini's childhood home on fire. You have to recognize that these were sacred spaces that people went to as pilgrims to worship to, that protesters are protesting in, in the cities, and then, you know, basically defiling and destroying. There have been numerous protests in the city of Qom, which is basically the Shiite capital of the world. You know, these are all seminaries, and you don't go to Qom unless you are a committed Muslim who wants to study Shiism. There have been protests there. There have been protests in Mashhad, which is another hugely conservative city. Another, I think, important indicator is that for the past several weeks, people were saying that there's no way that the bazaar, that basically the major marketplace and businesses of Iran would join. Well, what do you know? In the past two weeks, the bazaar also joined. And for at least a couple of days, the majority of the shops in all bazaars throughout the country were shut down. And what did the regime do? They took these red paint and whatever business was shut down, they marked. You know, we're watching you, we're seeing you. So I think just by doing a reconnaissance of the geography of the protests, you can see that in places where they have no protests before, there are protests this time around. That's fascinating. Let me shift a little bit from Iran to the reaction around the world. An acquaintance of mine asked me early on during the protests a question which I tried to answer as best I could, but I didn't feel I could entirely give justice to, which is, why don't people seem to care? Why in the United States, in Europe, in so many countries around the world, isn't this amazingly brave and big protest movement attracting as much attention, as much admiration, as much support as it should? What does it tell us about us? that this is not on the front page every day? Well, we can get negative and say, you know, we're apathetic, you know, be self-deprecating. That's not what I want to do. What I think is really most important to recognize is that when we talk about Iran sanctions, we're not just talking about something that happened to Iranians inside Iran. We're also talking about a firewall that was created in terms of public interest in the West, in terms of the intellectual engagement on the part of Western intelligentsia in the issue of Iran, because it appeared that it was too distant, too exotic, and too unknown, or too difficult to be explored and known, because again, of the Shiite disguise, of the religious disguise. And for many, many years, we have been as Americans, as intellectuals, we've been very daunted at the notion of even broaching the subject of Iran as an intellectual subject matter to engage with. 
In fact, tomorrow, you know, marks the anniversary of the passing of Christopher Hitchens. And I think, you know, of all the people whose absence I feel the most is Hitchens' absence because he was the only one who was never afraid to take on the mullahs and also take on the issue of the inevitability of change in Iran. In fact, he gave a talk, I think, 12 years ago, just before he died, that a revolution was coming to Iran because the generational change was going to make it inevitable. So I think we have been reluctant to challenge some of the notions that I think, in fact, the regime has been peddling to the Western public opinion. One has been, there's a reform and hardliner in Iran, and the best choice is to help enable the reform movement. Well, you know, the reform movement ended for Iranians in 2009, but still, you know, there are Western intellectuals that are still diehard, you know, followers of the reform hope and idea. Another notion is that if you lift the sanctions, you know, Iranians won't be on the streets. If the U.S. hadn't pulled out of the JCPOA, you know, the protesters wouldn't be on the streets. That so much of what we're seeing as if is simply an expression of the economic difficulties or the U.S. meddling or unmeddling in the issue of Iran. And I think these are all opinions that somehow have been filtered through to us, you know, partially by, I think, misguided academics, but partially also by the regime itself to convince us that either we should stay out because they're impossible to understand or comprehend because they're a different tradition, a different culture, a different religion, or that the politics are too complicated or the regime was too ubiquitous. And the best thing we could do was to help, you know, a faction from within the regime, which was the reformists, win. And I think that was just a very good game of good cop, bad cop that the regime played on us for over 20 years. So I think the best thing we, as especially intelligentsia in America, can do is to begin to see how we have thought about Iran in all the wrong ways and how we need to understand that if we are going to protect democracy in America, strengthen democracy in America, we need to care about democracy elsewhere in the world. Because any place where democracy loses, democracy everywhere weakens for everyone else. What concretely should the United States government, should the governments of European Union countries do in order to help preserve that hope of freedom in Iran? And what can ordinary people do? What can listeners to this podcast do to give concrete form to a solidarity that I'm sure most or all of them feel with the people protesting for freedom in the streets of Tehran and other cities at the moment? You know, in 1979, I wasn't here, I was in Iran. But I hear that when the hostage crisis happened and people in America were really concerned They were tying yellow ribbons around their trees in front of their homes and wearing them on their lapels just to make sure that everybody saw that they remembered the hostages. Well, the protesters deserve that sort of attention. We need to really recognize that the health of democracy in our country depends on the health of democracy in other parts of the world. And that, you know, just like Zelensky says, that Ukrainians are fighting on behalf of democracy in Ukraine. We also have to understand that Iranians are rising up on behalf of democracy for all of us. 
And therefore, let's hang flags, let's tie a ribbon, but let's make sure that they become part of the fabric of our consciousness, hopefully in the same way that Ukraine is. And I do, by the way, see these two events as very much interconnected, obviously, for not just morally, but also because Ali Khamenei and Vladimir Putin are each other's best friend and supporters at the moment. And then I think there is a slew of recommendations that various think tanks in this country have made, which includes a large gamut of ideas, starting with let's make sure Iranians have access to the internet and the regime can't turn it off, which means that we as Americans should invest in getting, you know, reception stations to the Iranians inside Iran somehow provided to them because people could possibly have access to Starlink, but they need the reception station. So let's turn that into a funded project where we do send in the reception stations. That's one huge step. And then I think there are a slew of other possibilities that so many others talk about. The Supreme Leader isn't on the list of persona non grata. It hasn't been sanctioned yet. Iran is aiding Russia, providing Russia with drones. So that really changes the calculation from what Iran is doing to its own people to Iran participating in an illegitimate war. And I think that gives us just the possibilities of enforcing international law and other pressures on Iran. Roya Hakakan, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Yasha. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.